Um, today we've got Laura Lamb, author of Goldilocks and the upcoming Seven Devils, and Adrian J. Walker, <laughs> is uh, good advertising there, Laura, uh, uh, and Adrian J. Walker, who's author of The End of the World Running Club and The Human Son. Uh, and amongst other things, we're going to discuss uh, creating imaginary worlds after a real-life pandemic has happened. Um, so, hi, Laura. How are you doing? How are you? I'm good, yeah. Still at home. <laughs> yeah. And how have you both been coping with the, with everything that's been going on? Uh, I've not been as productive. It's been a lot of yelling on Twitter, which I, I don't know if that's helping <laughs> anything. <laughs> I think that's the only way to use that social media platform now is I find myself yelling at it every time I use it now. It's just a nightmare. Mm. Yeah, I've been trying to keep away from it myself. It's uh, everything's fine here, really. We've, we've got two kids, so they've been sort of we've been homeschooling them and sort of keep day jobs going as well. Um, but as long as I stay away from Twitter, I'm fairly productive. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of people, certainly from social media, Twitter, and elsewhere, have been finding uh, sort of creating during all of this with all this sort of stress stressful situation going on quite difficult but have you have you been okay with that have you just been able to hunker down and and get on with writing or has has it presented its own difficulties I think um, because you had the same thing too you had to launch a book in the middle of it and promotion takes a lot of time away from writing at least for me because you feel like you have to be on social media more you can't just block yourself off and you have to write promotional posts and um, record things and so all of that sort of eating into my writing time and then I'm still teaching at Napier as well so it's a little quieter over the summer but I was also marking while launching a book in the middle of a pandemic and I was very tired (laughs) after that so I think I'm still recovering and now just starting to get my creation creative energy back it's been the complete opposite for me I've I've gone the complete complete different curve because I think, uh, I mean, we had sat on the same day, I think, didn't we? Yeah, end of, end of April, yeah. Yeah. Um, whoops. That was my, um, just a second. And uh, so I, I was aware very much that things weren't going to be quite as big, you know, as, as I thought they were going to be in terms of the marketing and all the rest of it. My publisher did an amazing job. Um, but obviously, you can't, if there's no bookshops, you can't sell a book so my, my book was actually the paperback has been postponed until September um, so there's a bit of a kind of disappointment about that but what I found was actually to take my my attention away from it was to concentrate on what I'm writing next uh, and that's done now so I'm now on the kind of uh, disappointment bit <laughs> so I'm, I'm losing the will to write and uh, yeah it is funny because you think you know to a lot of people they would say oh, I've been strapped at home for the three months is every writer's dream because you've just got mm. nothing but time in your hands and that's perfect but I think as we've seen it's probably the opposite because it's not it's your whole routine is completely thrown and it must take time to work out a new routine how to get into writing and, and living at the yeah, same time it's funny I mean having to do kids I mean they're amazing they've really adapted well uh, but obviously it is like being on summer holiday but for a long time and also trying to keep them occupied with the schoolwork. Uh, and we've both got full-time jobs that we're, we're trying to hold down as well. So it's been, it's been tough in that sense, but also we don't have the normal routine of the week. You know, you're not going out in the evenings, you're not taking 
you're not ferrying people about. So actually, it's a bit been a bit more time. It's actually been quite nice to spend that time as a family, and and the stuff around the edges at night and early morning. Uh, I'm finding that, that 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 that's been quite good for writing. Uh, so it's not been too bad. It's, 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 I think it's okay. I know some people have had it a lot worse. Yeah. I've been sort of having to relearn how to write because I really like to write in cafes. I just find oh, okay. I'm a lot more productive when I'm out of the house, especially there's a cafe I like to go to um, in Edinburgh that doesn't have internet and it doesn't have mobile reception either. So no matter what, <laughs> I get so much done there because I put myself in adult timeout. But I'm not as good at like switching the modem off when I'm at home and forcing myself to work without distractions. But I'm getting there. I mean, it, it was funny because when, when it first went into lockdown, there was all these, you know, lots of people saying they were going to write the first book and all this sort of stuff. But um, I, I don't think it's been quite as quite as easy as, as they thought, suddenly faced with all of this time. They haven't <laughs> been able to create that masterpiece that we've been carrying yeah. around. Right? Um, and uh, do you think having some sort of routine around it is still important? You know, if, if there are people watching that, I've been struggling to create during this sort of thing. Do you think getting into a routine is, is one of the key things to try and drive you forward through something like this? Yeah, that's, that's always a good idea, I think. Uh, but interestingly, I've, I've found finding new spaces to secrete myself away in. Uh, I mean, I've got an office, but it's kind of like an open door. You know, the kids will come in quite happily to ask questions and things. But finding new times and spaces to, to just sit for half an hour. I know, Laura, you've been doing these writing sprints as well, haven't you? Yeah, uh, yeah and I find those helpful. Yeah, uh, de- definitely that kind of thing where you just say, right, I've got 20 minutes between making dinner and, you know, putting the kids to bed, whatever. Just sit down and try and write a paragraph. Um, and you'd be surprised how much you can do in, in that sort of short time. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Pomodoro technique, which is sort of where I stole that from. Um, But even when I try and do it on my own, it's very easy to fritter away the time. So that's why tweeting like, oh, okay, I'm doing a sprint now gives me that little bit of extra accountability. Um, But I've also uh, locked myself out of Twitter for about 20 hours a day now, which helps to, I can do it in the afternoons and that's about it. So I yeah, write more in the mornings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For me, the, the biggest problem I have is definitely the internet. It's it's when you're at home and you've got yeah, as you say, the modems there. You've got the internet. There's you'll be typing, you'll be trying to write something, and then something pops in your head, a stupid thought, and you spend suddenly half an hour watching YouTube videos and reading Wikipedia pages about absolute crap that you don't, you'll never remember after finishing, research. and yet you wasted yeah, research exactly. Research. And uh, and so that that for me is the biggest the biggest issue. So I think some kind of lock on my social media internet usage would be a good thing for sure yeah freedom's doing a discount where you can get a lifetime membership for like 40 percent off so that's where i bit the bullet because it does it on your you can get it so it does it on your laptop and your phone every day so you don't have to select it it just does it for you and i i haven't figured out a way around it so if there is one no one tell me (laughs) (laughs) What is that? Does that just block off your access to yeah, the internet? You keep well to certain sites. So I'll I'll block okay. like the news and I'll block Twitter and Facebook and so if you try and go to it it just turns into a green screen with a butterfly and it's like you're free. <laughs> <laughs> you know, take advantage of this idea, moment. I know, it's brilliant. Because yeah, I, I have no self control, so it does help. <laughs> 
it's funny, isn't it, the, the love-hate relationship writers have with Twitter? Because it is so it seems to be a very writer-centric uh, platform. Um, and yet, I don't know anyone that, that doesn't hate it as much as they love it. You, know, the, the, <laughs> yeah. you can go through these really good weeks where you think everything's everything's great and and uh, you know the atmosphere on there is good, and, and, and especially if you've got a book launch and you get all the kind of you know all, all the Pavlovian responses that you, you're after. Um, but then you know, the next week, it's like you're walking through a hellscape. Yeah. <laughs> or it can change at a moment's notice. Yeah. Or yeah. for me, I find the pressure like I need to comment on certain things, but I need to comment on the right way, and. Mm. And then the balance of like you don't want to be over promoting, but you it's the only way to get the word out about your book is online now. So yeah, yeah it's just right. exhausting. I'm definitely <laughs> a doom scroller. <laughs> yeah, the doom spiral. I call it that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah, I've touched on it briefly, but obviously you both had uh, your books out, Goldilocks for you, Laura, and um, the Human Sun for you, Adrian, uh, and they were due to come out as normal, as a normal book launch, and then have been had to put back, albeit you can get them on uh, ebook at the moment. Um, and uh, did that sort of take, I think you basically said it, Adrian, it sort of must be a kind of deflating thing that you've been building up to this big event, and then suddenly it's it's not happening as you were, as you were expecting. Yeah, it, it was quite a deflate. I mean, for me, um, son, I, mean, I, I, I wrote The Human Sun three years ago now. Uh, so it's been a long time coming. It was supposed to be published by my uh, my other publisher uh, at Penguin Random House, but we decided it wasn't quite the right fit. So I ended up having a book I'd finished and then writing the sequel to Running Club instead for them. And my agent went off and got another book. But I, it is one of the books I've been most excited about uh, releasing. So to have all that kind of the years running up to you know, literally three years of it being, you know, pitched and found and edited and uh, then to finally have it launched and then not launched <laughs> was, was quite a big, a big, uh, a big deflation. But I, I'm actually not that um, unhappy about it because I think the publishers definitely made the right choice in, in deferring it um, because hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, there'll be bookshops open in September and, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm still excited. Yeah, well, mine mine didn't get deferred. I, it still came out in hardback and stuff. So, um, I I guess I have to hope that it'll maybe pick up again when the bookstores open. And I do still because it's hardback. I get the paperback launch too, which is you know kind exactly, of a second yeah. chance. So I think that's probably if it had been paperback release first, I think they would have deferred it. Um, but yeah, it's been strange because it seemed like this was a book that got the most momentum out of all my other releases. And I was going to have like a mini book tour. And my mom was going to fly out. And I had this whole like, you know, vision of how 2020 was going to go. And it seemed like it was going to be this great kind of turning point for my career, which sort of faltered a bit. And now I have no idea what's going to happen like long-term or career-wise or anything. Um, but I'm trying just to, you know, stay hopeful because in the grand scheme of things, you know, it's a minor thing. And how, how have you found the reception with with these more subdued, either ebook or, or in your case as well, or a hardback launches? Have, have they still gone reasonably well, or has it been a completely different experience? 
I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know because I did a lot of online things, um, and arguably I was probably able to do more for my U.S. publisher than I would have normally. Um, and they've been good at you know partnering me with like bigger authors like Anne Lecky, which was really nice. And I'm doing some bookstore events for them still. Um, so I think it's been interesting and more innovative and I probably going forward will still want to do more online things because it's nice that it's, you know, people can watch from all over the world, but, um, I don't think there's any way around the fact that sales have been affected when bookstores are closed and, um, like at the moment, Forbidden Planet, it's one of the few places you can buy my books, but their website's down, that sort of thing. Uh, mm -hmm. What about you, yeah, I mean, the, I'd echo that definitely because the, like I say, the, my publishers, Rebellion, have really pulled out all the stops to try and get as much exposure as they can. And for the ebook launch, you know, just, just for that short period, and they're doing more things for running up to September as well. Um, so, I mean, compared to my last couple of books, I've had much more exposure online. Um, but, the downside to that is there's so much other exposure of, of books online as well. So it's, it's, it's the same sort of thing. You know, people get swamped with, with, uh, with books and, you know, they're gone within a day and, and then it's down. I think, I think we've spoken about this briefly, Laura, on, on Twitter, that this kind of, you have this, like you say, this view of how a year is going to be and you get excited about it. It's impossible not to, but the only sane way I can, I, I can, manage that is just to have no expectations about my writing now i literally just write I, I i i had such a big kind of feeling of hope for this book and i still do but it's really bad for your mental health if you if you put everything on that you know on that yeah. hope um and, and it also affects your writing as well because writing just to attain some sort of um uh accolade or or, or financial reward you know it's 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 not going to be as good. So what I'm trying to do now is just everything I write is just for the writing. I just try and do that now. Uh, yeah. That's that's quite a, a little bit of a sort of depressive. <laughs> depressive <laughs> but actually, I feel quite positive about that because I don't have to worry about you know what I'm doing now. I, I, I just write, and if it if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah, it can be a bit freeing, too, if you're like, well, I'm just writing for the fun and the joy of it. And if yeah. people connect with it, great. If they don't, I still had fun. Um, and I think about probably 80% of the time, that's where I'm at with writing. And then 20% will just be like absolute panic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or something yeah. will like I'll be, you know, getting along and then something will happen. Like I got a link to a Bustle article, which is great because Bustle is a big website. But um, the link goes to like a child's book about Goldilocks. So the oh, buy no. link isn't even ah. the buy link for this massive site isn't even going to the actual book. And you're like, oh, God, <laughs> like how many, one, how many one click buys am I going to miss out on because it went to the wrong book? And like you can only laugh because like it's oh, no. just comical at this point. All the things that have gone like right but not right at the same time. So I think if yeah. I was so caught up in how it was doing and, you know, desperate to be a success. I think I'd be a mess now. Whereas now I'm like, well, <laughs> I did what I could. <laughs> exactly. yeah. and, and and looking forward a little bit, do you think this whole experience will change the, the type of future stories that you guys write or, or people would like to read, you know, will imaginary futures be changed at all based on the kind of present that we're living through at the moment? 
Um, I'm going to stop writing pandemics because both my books <laughs> here, both of my books out this year have pandemics in them. <laughs> so that's not pandemic yet. Yeah. Although my I say that, but my work in progress that I already started had like a plague, but 20 years ago. So I'm hoping that's all right. <laughs> and it was a magic plague. It was different. <laughs> um, but it probably, I don't know. I don't think I'll write anything more uplifting necessarily. Um, Cause I think my, my books are still a bit hopeful, but I'm sure, I'm sure what I'll write will change a little bit. Yeah. I think it's, it's been quite a big question on, on the panels I've done in the, in the last sort of few months, uh, the online ones. That's always been a question that people have asked you, know, how, how is speculative fiction going to change because of this? Uh, and I think most people's responses to that initially were, oh, yeah, no one can write a dystopia now because because we're living in a, a dystopia. Uh, but the more I've thought about it, the more I'm, I'm thinking it's, I mean, we're not really in a dystopia. This is, it's a very British middle class kind of dystopia. If that's, <laughs> if that's what it is. Uh, I mean, not from everyone's perspective, obviously, there's, there's be it way worse than others. But um, I think, you know, I, I was looking at the sort of history of sci-fi and dystopian fiction, uh, and you can see the big events through the 20th century and how that sort of changes things. Um, but the dystopia and, and the kind of speculative fiction and the future fiction is always there. It just tends to get redirected slightly. Um, and I think, if anything... I think people will start writing a little bit more about relationships and social behaviour rather than the big backdrops of a, of, a, of a strange future. I think the strange future, the different futures will be featuring the changes in people's behaviour that might come from an incident like this or maybe an exaggerated uh, incident like this. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the way people are you know, the social distancing, that's that's the kind of behaviour that I've really learnt uh, well, you know, in the last in the last few months. That's now part of my, when I go for a run or a walk, I am, I literally have this sort of field around me. Um, and that's going to be quite difficult to get away from, I think, especially if you consider how long this might go on for. Uh, and that will change people's behaviours. Uh, it doesn't take much to extrapolate how that might change our yeah. societies as well. I think it it might end up changing contemporary fiction more than science fiction, though. Yeah, because how do you write about the contemporary world when we're not quite sure how things are going to shake out in the next mm -hmm. few months? Because you sell a book and it comes out, you know, eight months to two years later. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I uh, work in progress about four years uh, and set it before 2020 <laughs> just to get out of that sticky uh, question. Yeah, do you, I mean, it, yeah, we, should we, you mention it? Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I was just going to say, Tarek, exactly that. When we spoke with other people, they, they were saying, like, if you mention it, it might actually end up dating your book massively if you put something in like social distancing or mask wearing. It might last for a couple of years, but then, you know, in 10 years, if you're reading a book, it will suddenly, it'll suddenly make it very clear that this book was written at that time. And so... It's difficult, I think, to know what to include and what, what not to include, I suspect. I suppose it comes down to the, I mean, I, I keep sort of reverting to dystopian fiction because that tends to be what I have written. Uh -huh. um, but 
I guess it comes down to the kind of tropes that we use in, in, in those kind of books because, you know, apocalyptic and dystopian fiction has a whole set of tropes which people expect when, when they're reading it. Uh, and they're not really that crucial to the story. They just tend to be the kind of the backdrop in which you challenge your, your protagonist. But I, I guess when we're talking about writing futures now, it just means we're going to have to come up with a whole new set of tropes that people yeah. will expect. Um, or something that's been interesting for me was that I wrote Goldilocks last year before any of this was on the horizon, but it's about five women on a spaceship being incredibly isolated for months on end. So people keep like highlighting certain passages and being like, this is how I feel right now. And I did not expect people to be feeling like the five women in the spaceship yeah. when I wrote it last year. So, uh, And I didn't expect people to be wearing masks outside. I had that in Goldilocks too, but I have them wearing it for climate change reasons. So it's been a really weird experience putting in tropes from dystopia that I just found interesting, but now having them be the lived experience of so many um, it's it's a really strange. Like you feel almost guilty that you predicted the yeah. future right by accident. It's, it's weird. Did you find that uh, the uh, the way that people were isolating has mirrored how people have been isolating the kind of the psychological effects and? Yeah, yeah. Like I have a whole chapter on the importance of routine in space, right. and still like marking. Um, you know, like there's a whole chapter with Fourth of July. They decide to have like a fun you know, celebration of 4th of July, because it's important, because otherwise time just starts blurring together. And that stuff I borrowed from reading so many astronaut memoirs while writing the book. And actually reading a lot of astronaut memoirs helped prepare me for isolation pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, though, because some of the tropes that we have seen in in, uh, dystopian fiction before... I mean, as you say, June, it's not really that we're living in a dystopia. It's not. It's not like that. But, but you know, the first thing that people would often think would happen is that society starts collapsing and people are at, are out for themselves and will only act selfishly. But in fact, largely speaking, anyway, generally the opposite is true. And everyone sort of banded together and tried to help each other and support each mm-hmm. other during it. And you know, I just wonder if things like that. Might might filter through into some storytelling as well, rather than sort of the pessimistic view of society. I think the um, the um, the big idea that I I sort of keep I keep having is is the the idea that we we have been living in this idea where we um, we are beholden to the the politics and the society that we we live in, you know, almost invisibly. Uh, I think what we're possibly finding to some extent through this experience is that we, we probably can deal with our own affairs on our own. You know, we don't need that kind of uh, guidance. We're, we're quite self-organizing when it comes down to it. And to see that community spirit come out um, has been quite en- en- enlightening. Uh, and, yeah, I think maybe that's that's one sort of thread we'll see in, in fiction is this kind of um, resurgent community and, and uh, you know, small tribes, if you like, self-organizing. One thing I found um, interesting, too, is that it seemed to 
it started with the pandemic, but because that pandemic has really laid bare the like existing inequalities in society that's starting to have knock on effects. So we're seeing, you know, yeah. that COVID is affecting, you know, black people more um more strongly, not necessarily because of genetics, but because of systemic racism. And then that sparked all of the police brutality protests in the states um, where people are like, we have to even risk protesting in a pandemic because things are this bad. And now we're seeing, you know, racist statues get toppled. And so it's, it's seen all these dominoes fall. And on the one hand, you're worried because this is a scary point in history, but I'm finding myself feeling little by little, a little bit more hopeful that maybe we're finally saying enough is enough and we need to stop this and we need to start thinking about systemic racism and we need to start thinking more about misogyny and we need to think more about climate change and fixing the future. And I'm hoping like the thing about pandemics is they destabilize power structures. They're actually very bad for the people who are in power. So I'm hoping that we can actually start moving towards a less, like we can start moving more towards a brighter future than a darker one. I mean, you can't say that, can't you, that that people are, you know, the, 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 the will of those in power is to return things to normal as quickly as possible. Um, And suddenly everyone else is sort of saying, well, hold on, we don't want to go back to that to what you're calling normal because it didn't quite work in the way that it worked for you, but it didn't work for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure these things will, will play out in, in what people are writing in the future, for sure. The consumerism thing is interesting to me as well. Uh, just following mm-hmm. on from what you were saying there, Laura, I mean, I don't think anyone's really missing going to the shops at the moment. I think, uh, that's just become a strange memory, but I mean, it's, I I do like I, I am looking forward to you know going out as a family and you know going and eating, going to the cinema and that kind of thing. But actually buying things that's sort of been taken away a little bit. I know people still buy online, but I'm sure there's been a been a retraction there somewhere. And uh, I was actually talking to a friend recently, and he was he was saying he'd read an article on what to prepare for when all the lockdowns fully lifted that we're going to get such a barrage of advertising and, and uh, uh, messages to get us back to where we were before, you know, that, that kind of behavior of, of just blindly buying, you know, and, and uh, I don't know about you, but I've, I've actually saved quite a bit of money in the last few months because yeah. not spending on anything. Yeah. Yeah. Our our spending's definitely gone down. And I mean, my my husband was furloughed for a month, so we lost a tiny bit there, but then he started a new job. But I think, yeah, we're starting to see that capitalism is maybe not the be all and end all and that we weren't actually very happy spending and spending and spending. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think this is causing a lot of people um, to reassess their actual priorities and that actually slowing down it would be nice to have this opportunity to slow down without that low grade anxiety of the pandemic. Cause that makes it hard to fully relax, but there have been, you know, bright moments in lockdown. I've been practicing languages more. Um, I've been drawing more. I've been, you know, just taking more walks and, you know, looking, exploring little hidden corners of leaf that I haven't stumbled upon before. So yeah. for those who are at home and not on the front lines, I think it has sort of opened our eyes to that. Yeah, we've we've certainly started, you know, buying our food and veg from local kind of you know like our local farms or areas that that sell as opposed to going to the supermarket 
and I think that's something that we'll probably keep doing even once it's all over. And and it's quite it's you know so we pay a bit more, or whatever. But it's quite nice knowing that it's locally produced and it's not mass made and shipped over and across the sea and the great expense, etc. So it's I think there's I wonder if there's like that kind of little bits and pieces will carry on even though what even once life gets back to normal again, which would be quite nice to think mm-hmm. about. We're all assuming it's going to go back to that's a quite a nice hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> or the new, the new normal, I think. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy, and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. And Adrian, I, I, I want to ask you something that you've been uh, tweeting about recently, which was the publishing paid me hashtag, which is oh, yeah. all over Twitter the past few days. And it's, for those that haven't seen it, it's essentially a hashtag on Twitter. Where, I mean, writers and authors are sharing um what the advances were for each book they got. And I found it really interesting seeing what authors kind of what you imagine in your head you'll get for a book and what the reality of it is. And and I, I wonder if you if you think a lot of people would be surprised how much or little authors get paid in advance for books before they come out. I was very surprised. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saddened. Yeah. I mean I'm a I'm a personally a weird case because i've sold books for incredibly low advances and like two books sold for really high advances and now they're kind of one still lowish and one's more in the middle and i'd be quite happy just getting that middle advance over and over um because that's enough to basically cover what i make in my day job part-time so it would be a full-time wage and it would be a comfortable middle-class wage and that's really all i 
need to make or want to make. Like I see some of the eye-watering amounts. And on the one hand, you're like, oh, I want that half a million book deal. But on the (laughs) other hand, I know I would be an absolute wreck too, because there's a lot of pressure when you have a really big advance because you have to sell a lot of copies. And for example, Goldilocks was a smaller advance, but through, because it was a world deal, I've already earned out through foreign rights even before it came out. And so I feel a lot less stressed about, you know, the whole situation with sales because I'm like, well, I've already been profitable for them. So it takes a lot of the pressure off. Yeah. Um, so I it think is, it's it is, double-edged sword. It's staggering, actually, the the leap that, that, that some authors are able to make, you know, from, from uh, a small four-figure to suddenly up to six. Uh, that, that's what I don't quite get, I suppose. I, I, I don't know how that works. Um, but I mean, advances are advances. I, I would, I would much rather have, um, a good marketing budget and a good marketing campaign in order to get the, the, the book out and, and, and the word out than an advance, because you know, then at least it's going to have a much better chance of, of, uh, of selling. And then you get the royalties and, and the royalties kind of continue for this. Um, so yeah, I think it was a useful hashtag to, to, to highlight for, for its, for its purpose, which was to highlight the disparity between effectively white male authors and, and, and everyone else um, yeah. would have been nice if a few more white male authors had, had posted but um, yeah yeah there were not a lot of white men in that hashtag I noticed no. <laughs> lots of people um, saying oh, I'm just taking a break from Twitter yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> I think it also highlighted how capitalism and publishing has gone awry too because there's so many huge advances that are thrown out because it goes to auction and everyone's like, mm. oh, okay, I guess we have to throw a bunch of money at it. But really, if we had a more of an established minimum of advances where it's like if you sell a book to especially one of the big five publishers, you know you'd get, I don't know, the equivalent of six months minimum wage as like a bare minimum for a book. Um, and maybe there is an upper end too. Like if it goes to auction, like you just can't spend more than half a million on a book. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter who you are. Like that's the upper limit. And then they have to court you with their marketing budget or the other stuff they do. Um, I think that would be interesting, but I don't think it'll ever happen. I wish, though, that we were unionized like Hollywood, where, where there's a guarantee. If you're a member of the union, you have to have a minimum amount for the screenplay. And the fact that, you know, big five publishers can offer like $5,000 for a book that takes so many hours to produce is like just very sad. <laughs> Definitely. I think the, the the problem is that it is almost expected that most authors have jobs and it's just a thing you do on the side um, a lot of the time. Uh, I was asked once by someone in the publishing industry I was working with, are you one of those authors that needs to make money from writing? <laughs> yeah, so it's like there is that choice, you know, either you're an author that just writes for the, you know, the love of it or, or you make a living out of it. Uh, and... Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know whether it's the right model at the moment or, or not. Um, I've always wondered if if it's ever been if anyone's ever attempted to have authors as employees. You have them as your one of your authors that you write that, that writes for you. Uh, you know, rather than having this kind of strange contract that changes every time. Well, that's um, almost like a sort of Hollywood studio system yeah. from fifties yeah. or something, where you tell. Writers, basically, yeah, yeah, and yeah, actors as well. Because mm-hmm. it would be nice. Because 
I put a graph on publishing paid me that shows my income since 2012 and you can see it. It's just like up and down, up and down and there's yeah. no way to plan for anything too. So it feels like whenever I do have a decent chunk of money, I just have to like clutch it because I don't know how long it needs to last me. Um, so if I could know that I was guaranteed a decent minimum amount every year that I could actually pay my bills and not have to stress, I would probably write faster and better books. And, you know, you could be in, contact with the publisher more and be like okay what sort of thing do you want to see you know I can write like this what do you think would be marketable and that's a little bit what I had with Goldilocks and that that was a quasi work for hire and that they had they knew they wanted to write or have a book of women in space and we kind of worked together to figure out what that would be Um, so if I could yeah I don't know I would love stability I don't know who has stability in this industry but it it would be really nice (laughs) Do you think that that puts new authors off wanting to come into the scene? You know, people seeing. I, mean, I suppose it's that thing. Whereas, as you, you kind of said, Adrian, do you write because you love to write and you want to share your work with the world? Or, but I can't do that because I need to eat. You know, there, there's that kind of balance of I need to get paid a fair wage for for my time. And do you think the low advances put new authors off coming into the scene? I think uh, especially I think... marginalised ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see. I can see why that would happen. Uh, I think for a lot of new authors, the actual thrill of just having found a publisher is probably enough to uh, enough to sort of counter any financial anxiety. Um, but uh, I mean, what, what I was saying about um, uh, uh, you know just writing for, for the love of it, yeah, that, that's a kind of uh, self defense thing, really. I, I, it shouldn't have to be like that. You know, you should. It, it does take a lot of your time and energy to write a book. You guys know that. Uh, you know, it's it's it is a mind constantly before and after you're writing it. You know, it takes up most of your days, uh, and it's a lot of emotional energy as well. So, you know, I think authors should be that there should be some sort of standard that, like like Laura was saying, uh, by which we can you know predict how we're going to have our years. Mm. You know, and, and not well, I mean, yeah, pay jobs. Even looking at some of the advances, if you broke those down to an hourly rate over the time to write these books. Yeah, it's depressing. Yeah. 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 And even my like my big book deal um, was the equivalent because it's broken. It's paid over three or four years. So it still broke down to about twenty five thousand pounds a year, which is a very average wage. Um, And that was, you know, by far my biggest advance. Uh, and now, you know, your payments come through and it's like an extra paycheck or something, which is nice, but it only comes every X number of months. Um, but I do think writing's also very much the long game. So now that I'm eight years into it, I have more chance of like surprise subsidiary rights selling or um, I'll, this is the first year I'll actually get royalties coming through and hopefully for future books as well. So, And I'm nimble, like I'll try different genres if something doesn't work. I don't write to market, but I'm still aware of the market i suppose and you know if something if one genre just keeps not working then i'll try something different and see what happens i have a lot of book ideas i really love and want to write and i don't really mind what order i write them in well i mean that brings me on to the question i was going to ask which is what you're both currently working on at the moment i don't know laura if you want to go first um, I'm currently working on Seven Devils 2 because that has a deadline that is sooner than we thought it was. <laughs> um, so we are very behind. We basically told them we're not going to hit the deadline because a lot of book two 
had a pandemic in it and we've decided to get rid of that. So we had to replot a lot of it. Um, so we're, we're fighting our way through what we call the trash draft. Cause this is a collaborative project w- written with uh, Elizabeth May. So it's, it's just God awfully ugly right now as we're just sort of throwing <laughs> things down. So it's got seven points of view and flashback in a huge galaxy. So it's a lot of moving parts and we just have to get things down on the page and then step back and look at it afterwards. So I'm working on that, and then I'm also working on a not-speculative novel that's the fictionalized version of my family history, which I started writing a few years ago and realized I wasn't ready to write it, and now I'm easing back into it. So it's completely different, and if I publish it, it'll probably be under a different name just because it's so different. Um, So I have no idea what will happen with it. But it's been interesting because I'm working really closely with my mom and learning things about her past and my family history and and things like that. So I'm enjoying it. So So are you writing that book as a a fiction story, but but really kind of like based on a true story? Yeah, Yeah, heavily inspired by real stuff. But there's a few things we needed to change to just make it a better story. So we added a bit of an element of mystery. Like, for example, my grandmother died when I was three in real life. But in the book, fictional me, the grandmother dies when I'm 16 and um, it's my mom finally telling me the story of what happened when really she was very open about it, but we've added that more kind of tension between the characters because mm-hmm. otherwise it would not be as exciting of a book. And there's also just a lot of stuff we don't know. Like we're fairly sure my grandfather was a CIA agent who worked for Operation Whoa. Golden Stopwatch in the 50s, but we don't have proof. So we're just working on the assumption. Uh, there is a newspaper clipping of his death that said he definitely worked for the CIA. So that's we know that's true, but we don't know what he did. Something with spy satellites. But weirdly, the book is not really focused on that very much, even though that's fascinating because there's <laughs> much, much wilder things that happened in my family. A couple cool. of murders, that Look sort of stuff. That. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> very exciting. <laughs> uh, what about you, uh, I've just finished a book called Ablaze, um, which is about a, a a boy, 15 year old boy from Houston from a broken home uh, and his daughter, sorry, his sister, young sister, seven year old, who's a savant. Um, and he basically kidnaps her and takes her across America to a, a maths Olympiad to try and uh, win some money. But along the way, he finds out that she's a little bit more than just a, a mathematical genius. Um, so it's uh, a little bit of a departure of the kind of future dystopian stuff. It's set in the present uh, but it does have a kind of uh, otherworldly feel to it as well. So I've just sent that off to my agent. So we're, we're going to see what happens with that. Fingers crossed. Um, yeah. But I've also been working on uh, the last few years, actually, I've been working on a screenplay with um, uh, an actor and a screenwriter for Running Club. Uh, and we recently got to pitch it to um, Netflix and, and a few other companies as well. All of whom loved it, but do not want post-apocalyptic stuff. (laughs) Put it on hold for a few more years, maybe. Well, it's funny. It actually links into what we were saying earlier. They they, they didn't say come back in a few years. They said come back in a few months. That's how quickly they can see the public changing their their kind of perspectives. So we'll see. Yeah, it's been fun writing a screenplay, actually. Um, Yeah, I've been wanting to branch into that, too. It's so liberating. You don't have to think about what's going on in people's heads. It's just what they're saying. 
doing yeah. Yeah, there is. There's definitely something quite nice about about a script, where as you say, you don't need to go into any massive bits, bits of description or inner thoughts. It's just literally it's pacey, it's quick moving. It's yeah, what you're doing and everything's coming through action or yeah, dialogue. Yeah, yeah. that's not to say it doesn't come with its, uh, its challenges and, and you know. No, of course. To be a good writer, you have to really nail the dialogue and the, and the action. But it does take away that kind of you know when you write a book that empty page is quite ding. With a with a screenplay, it's really easy to fill it. You, know, you, can, you can get that yeah. page done quite quickly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we've had a, we've had a couple of uh, listener questions that have, that have popped in the inbox, so I'll just throw these ones out there. Uh, this is one from Dave, who's written in, and he said, "If you could uh, write with one other author, who would that be?" Laura, who would your choice be for? I mean, I've already written with co-writer? a. a li- I've already written with Elizabeth May, so aside from her, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Nothing's jumping into my head. I'm supposed I'll, I suppose I'd think of someone. <laughs> Margaret, yeah, Adrian would be fun. I bet. <laughs> if we're really reaching for like the, they'll, they don't even know who I am. Margaret Atwood would be pretty cool, though. It would also be incredibly intimidating. Yeah, so you have to balance the intimidation with the. Yeah, especially someone who's who's done yeah, someone like that so well established would be I'd always be thinking, What what the hell am I doing? What can I possibly bring to this kind of collaboration? I know, but I think I think for these questions you have to it's like who would you have at your No no, it's a realistic answer, Marco. You don't need you've got to assume that they want to work with you as well, I think. <laughs> you know, so Morgan we came to Laura's door and said, Laura, yeah, please yeah. I've just made yeah. Goldilocks, so I really want to write with you. Uh, you can dream. I did send her a copy of Goldilocks, um, and I think it got to her, but I, I haven't heard anything. So maybe one day she'll read it. Went to Stephen King too. I don't know if he read it yet. Come on, Stephen. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, who's your dream co-writer? Um, like Laura, I, I probably have a list of people I would I would imagine I'd want to work with, but I would find it intimidating. Uh, David Mitchell, I'd like to. Oh God, yeah. I love his his writing. I've recently got into Cookington, actually. really like her stuff. Uh, but again, intimidating. Um, Tom Robbins, probably. I always liked his, his work. Uh, it'd be quite fun. I assume we're doing Living and Dead Authors as well. We'll go way yes. back. Mm-hmm. Kerwin Melville. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want it to? Yeah. <laughs> More whale, more whatever, to do the too fast, too furious. And we've had another question from uh, Leslie, who um, uh, says, as as an author starting out, would you recommend self-publishing as a route to go down as opposed to traditional? Um, I've done some self-publishing on the side. And Adrian, I think you have too, right? Um, And I find it... Yeah, I find it fun and it's great to have that opportunity to get out to market. And I think definitely for certain projects, it probably makes more sense to self-publish than to trade publish. Like I I, um, did FF romance novellas and I don't think there is a trade market for novellas um, in any case. And so I haven't ever had loads of financial success from self-publishing, mostly because there's only so much time I can devote to it between my other writing projects and my day job. But I think it can be really fulfilling because you get access, you get to 
be fully responsible for it and um, be in charge of every step of production, which is really nice. So I think it's definitely worth doing if you're willing and able to do all the other stuff like the marketing and the promotion, because that's not for everyone. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for self-publishing. I mean, I'll be here. I wouldn't be talking to you because, I mean, the end of the world running club was originally self-published. So that's how it really got off the ground. And it was picked up by Penguin because for the strength of its of its online. Uh, and it, like you say, it can be really fun. And there's zero anxiety because you completely charge, you know, cover, notate, the um, um, formatting, uh, the marketing, everything. So it's all in your control. So you can't really blame anything or, or you know, shake a fist at the universe if it goes wrong because you, you know, you, you do it and you can get better at it as well. That's the thing you can, you yeah. can really learn if you put the time in. You can, you can really understand how it works. But you also have to take a lot more responsibility for what you put out. So you have to be for an editor. And that's that's not just a, a nice to have. You really have to put your money into that, I think, especially for for, for, the, for the longer novels. Uh, so it's a bit of an outlay. You know, you really have to outlay, outlay some money to, to do it professionally. Because otherwise, you'll have stuff out there that is, you know, if, if your career takes off, you know, and you, and you move down the line, you've still got this thing online, which is, part of your your body of work and, and if it's not in line with the others then that, that can look bad um but yeah i, I definitely recommend it as, as a means of, of of getting your stuff out there mm-hmm. awesome cool. and and you guys are both obviously you've written up your fair share of sci-fi novels um or near future sci-fi novels i suppose um and if you had to recommend one sci-fi book to the, the listeners out there what would it be and and why i suppose Mm, that's hard. I know it's not. That's not an easy question. It doesn't have to be the best sci-fi book, but just maybe one you've read recently and quite enjoyed. Uh, well, I'm sixty percent through the Human Sun, and I'm enjoying that one. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't quite finished. Reed is thirteen years old at present, so it's still got some okay. growing up to do. Um, but I and that's got an interesting thematic link with. Have you read um, Lilith's Brood by Octavia Butler? It starts with um, no. Oh, I forget what the first one's called. It's like a trilogy of three in one book that I'm reading. And it's a similar kind of setup, like humanity has been destroyed and aliens or other beings are kind of, you know, experimenting with the dregs or deciding how to reintroduce society or if they should. And um, Octavia Butler has really, really alien aliens with like creepy tentacles on their faces. Um, But I find I always really enjoy Octavia Butler's writing because she's so deeply empathetic. Like even the bad guys are really empathetic and interesting so yeah cool, cool. awesome cool no i'd love to say goldilocks and i will uh, but i haven't read it yet sorry <laughs> <laughs> i had to read yours quite quickly because i was like shit i should try and start it at least oh, no. but then i read it quickly. <laughs> now you'll have to uh, go off it <laughs> i definitely will uh, I, I would always say hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy just because it was the first sci-fi book i read and it stayed with me mm. all my life I don't think there's been anything I've, I've really enjoyed quite as much since. Um, probably because I was 13 at the time, so, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, the last thing that we're going to do is, uh, this is Tarek's, Tarek's come up with this game for the Page One Sessions videos, which is we take um, 
quotes that you're uh, don't worry it's not amazon one star reviews or anything like that it's quotes <laughs> the worst book i've read all year <laughs> no blurbs blurbs for uh, your your books and you have to guess who's they belong to i mean I imagine you'll probably know which one they belong to tara do you want to go with one first? yeah okay so i'll pick one um <clears throat> so who wrote a chilling read that will have you gripped from page one who what anyone know who that might have applied to what for for our books yeah, yeah. One, of, one of you two one of either either one of you I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> is this like reviews or uh, Amazon reviews or editorials? It's, it's, it, I suppose it's, what I would say is it's, it's either reviews or blurbs. It's like official reviews. It's not Amazon reviews. It would be like right. out of a magazine or another, another author can or something. I, can I cheat? <laughs> not on the back of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I I, I... I think it's one of yours, Laura. Maybe. It is one of Laura's, yes. Okay. It was for Pope's Hearts. Oh, okay. Oh, I was thinking this book. Oh, okay. Ah, nice. From Women's Own, apparently, said that. Ah, thank you, Women's Uh, Own. I'll do one. Um, A thought-provoking imaginary call to arms. Oh, I know that one. That's Katie Kahn. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's on the cover. (laughs) (laughs) That was too easy. Yeah, see, there it is. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a great quote to have in the front yeah, cover as well. Brilliant. Um, okay, here's here's one. Uh, <clears throat> this might be easy or or hard. Um, probably easy. A real find. <laughs> oh, so that's Steve's. That's Steve's uh, quote. <laughs> yeah, uh, some guy called Stephen King. Some, some said that, Steve King guy wrote that. Vaguely <laughs> well known. <laughs> That would be running. Uh, uh, and uh, a story that fosters a curious mind and an open heart, questioning and inspiring both without judgment. I recognise that. And I think it's the human son. It is indeed. It's from Sci Fi Now. I've said that. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, I have to say, those are four excellent quotes you guys had in your book. They are, yeah. It's a yeah, fun game. Really I feel like when you see a <laughs> You read a review or get a quote like that. And I've always wondered, how does it work for blurbs? Do you get any, you know, do you, do you get told, oh, this is what so-and-so said about your book. It's going to go in the front cover or it's going to go in the back. Or do you do you give a book to someone and say, I want you to give me a quote for the back page or something? Is that, how does it work? It's usually a blend. So the editor will send off books to maybe other editors within or other authors within their stable, um, which is how I got a couple where I didn't know them directly, like say through Orbit or through Wildfire. Or I came up with a short list of people I wanted to send books to. And the ones I knew well enough to email, I would say, hey, what's your address? And I'll send it off to you. And I wrote little um, handwritten like postcards for all of them to see if that would help them <laughs> actually blurb it. And maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Um, and then, yeah, sometimes they kind of come through, but you only really know if it's going to be on the cover. Like sometimes I'll send you an image of here's the final cover. And then you like, oh, okay, you chose that one. And it'll be different. Like the US one has a different full quote. It has Alex White on it instead of Katie Khan. That sort of thing. Yeah, it's the same. same that's, that's, that's how it's worked for me as well. 
it's an awkward sure. thing asking for blurbs too because yeah, I, I don't know imagine. if you find this like if I'm asked to read a book for a blurb it immediately feels like homework and then <laughs> I don't want to read it even though I'm sure I'll like it or if I read it then I feel awkward because I'm like do I love it enough to blurb can I think of yeah. a blurb will my blurb even do anything I'm a nobody and it just spirals so, so can sometimes you see, I don't no, can you see actually I didn't really like it it was kind of crap so I'm not going to give you a blurb or Usually, uh, I, I do the coward's approach and I say, like, when do you need the blurb by? And I'll either give you a quote by then or I won't. And if I won't, it's because <laughs> it's because either I didn't have time to get to it or I was too anxious with my own shit to do it or I didn't like the book. But most of the time, it's the first two rather than the last one. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm the worst to ask for quotes because I'm such a slow reader anyway. Um, but... I, I tend to quote more on books that I've just found or that I know. And I think most authors are, are aware of it. The, 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 the bit I get most anxious about is when when I'm sent books from debut authors because I know how much mm. it's riding on that. And they possibly put me as the name that they wanted to to read. So you do feel that pressure to kind of, oh, what if I don't like it? If I don't like it, do I, I don't like it? Or you know, no one wants to know if someone doesn't like the book. So I... I tend to just not say anything if I if I if I don't get on with the book, um, but yeah, the thing is, you, you can actually if if you if you really want to help out an author, you can say something positive about most things. You know? Yeah, uh, or sometimes yeah. even if I don't if I don't blurb it, I'll still like retweet about it and stuff. Yeah, and try and get it some visibility that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much for taking the time to do that. We really appreciate you. No worries, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, thanks guys, that was awesome.